Welcome to the Drill Down. We've got business stories behind stocks and a move. I'm Cora Johnson with episode number 204. Well, just ahead, McDonald's revenues are up, but is the business actually getting worse? And apparently the pandemic is not over for Estee Lauder. And we take a deep dive into the energy patch with Ranger Energy Services. I'm going to talk to the CEO, Stuart Bodden. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. Never miss another critical event or insight ever with ERA. Customize your company watch list and track key events, my mentions, filings, and more, all within an easy-to-use, customizable interface. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A.com. And you can listen to The Drill Down on any of your favorite podcast platforms, including Spotify, Apple iTunes, Pandora, Stitcher, Audible, Amazon, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Deezer, Listen Notes, Player FM, and on any one of these, you click the subscribe button, you'll follow us and catch every show. All right, I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to The Drill Down. We're going to explain the business stories behind some stocks and move. Joining me to help me do that, as always, executive producer Isaac Webster. Isaac, uh, interesting times with uh, all these earnings coming out as we try to figure out what's going on with the economy uh, in little pieces with uh, the view into these companies. Yeah, it's and um, we have a grab bag today, which gives us a really wide view. Corey, what stocks are you drilling on, down on today? I want to start with McDonald's, which is going back about a week, but I thought there was a really interesting note in the earnings of McDonald's that recognize a, a kind of a theme that's going on in the economy. Uh, McDonald's doesn't get much more global than McDonald's and uh, McDonald's shares trade under MCD. MCD shares have risen more than four and a half percent over the past month and risen 20 percent in a year. So the theme I want to talk about is was brought up by my friend uh, Herb Greenberg uh, in a recent uh, newsletter he put out. But it's this idea that companies that are seeing big increases in revenue maybe aren't seeing big increases in revenue because their business is doing better. It's just because they're jacking up prices. And a lot of them are, are reaching the end of that. And so you start to wonder, you know, if companies are seeing volumes up a little and prices up a lot, revenues go up a lot. But that can't continue forever. In fact, that might be a one quarter, if not a one year phenomenon. And we saw that, I think, in the results of McDonald's. So their global comp sales are up 13%, um, uh, a lot more than it was expected. I think it was the analysts were looking at 8%, whatever analysts are always wrong. But uh, it's interesting because their prices were higher, their volumes were barely higher. Um, the U.S. comp sales up as well in, in stores that used to exist uh, over the previous year. But uh, this was about menu price increases. It wasn't about huge change in volumes. In fact, in some cases, volumes were down. And this is really the impact of inflation. Their CEO, uh, Chris Kamzinski, uh, talked about this on the conference call, talking about very specifically you know, whether people were ordering extra stuff, whether it was fries and a shake with that. You want to, you know, did fries come with that shake? The old joke? Well, uh, was that a joke? Sure. Uh, here's the <laughs> McDonald's CEO referencing volumes and price increases. We do see some of the pressures that uh, give us reason to believe that, you know, our, our view on the macro outlook uh, is accurate, which is one, we are seeing a slight decrease in units per transaction. So uh, things like, you know, did someone add fries to their order? Uh, how many items are they buying per order? We're seeing that uh, go down uh, in most of our markets uh, around the world slightly, but it's still going down. Uh, and then the other thing is we continue to monitor very closely uh, the acceptance of our pricing. I'm really proud of how our system 
has executed pricing in, in light of the uh, double-digit inflation that we have uh, been experiencing. But we, we are seeing, uh, in some places, resistance to pricing, more resistance than we saw uh, at the outset. So they tried to couch that in positive uh, terms, but really that to me was concerning, that, that uh, the price increases, uh, whether it's just at McDonald's or what the consumer's just feeling in their pocket, um, is affecting the way that they shop at McDonald's and beyond. But I mean, listen, you're not going to get a, a, a less expensive meal than at McDonald's, right? Yes, and yet they're feeling a pinch. Corey, what's your next drill down? Let's look at Kraft Heinz. Kraft Heinz. These guys make ketchup, right? Among other things. My my kids just love ketchup. Um, Kraft Heinz, KHC, KHC, and the KHC, KHC shares are higher by over 5% in a month, but they're still lower by 3.5% if you're looking at a 12-month chart. So, yes, they make uh, ketchup. They make uh, uh, Oscar Mayer meats, deli meats, whatever. Hot Kool-Aid, dogs. Um, hot dogs, sure. Uh, Pittsburgh-based company. $6.5 billion in revenue uh, in the most recent quarter. That's up 7%. Uh, and profits of $1.5 billion. So a big company, very profitable company. Um, and indeed, they're seeing increased volumes because of because uh, restaurants, even McDonald's, more expensive than it used to be. That's pushing at-home consumption of food, people moving away from restaurants uh, on the margin. And again, price increases... Uh, helping boost revenues, uh, at least for this quarter, at least for this year, not so much volume increases. Here's the U.S. President, Carlos Abrams Rivera. We took pricing in the middle of the quarter as we were catching up to to margins. So if you think about a couple of those categories, let me highlight uh, uh, a couple of them. One, you know, cream cheese, for example. We did see some supply chain uh, challenges that we had in the quarter. Those are things that prevented us from really taking advantage of the Eastern time period. And we'll be, and in fact, we are now in a position that we'll be better off as we go into the year to go. Another one I'll tell you is cold cuts, in which we began the year with a low inventory situation in our, in our, in our business. And, and again, as we think about cold cuts by the end of the summer, we should be in a much better place in terms of complete supplying the overall business. So that a sense of the short-term supply constraint is it's an assessment, well assessment of, of how we see the quarter as well. The one thing I would add too is that there are places where in categories we're, we're simply not going to be chasing volume down. So if you think about bacon, it's a category that you know we are that probably was about a point of headwinds in our when you look at the data and consumer data, but but we're simply not going to be chasing volume that is not profitable. So not chasing volume that's not profitable. What they're really talking about there is that uh, volume increases just aren't happening. The price increases are, but once again, I think that that doesn't bode well for the coming uh, quarter and year. Yeah, if I was a um, Kraft Heinz shareholder, I would not like what I just heard. Corey, what's your next drill down? Let's look at Estee Lauder. Estee Lauder trades under EL and shares have plummeted over 14% in a week. If you're looking at an EL chart, there's just a steep drop over the past week. And uh, EL shares are down 15% over the past 12 months. Huge company, $87 billion market cap. 
Um, and so uh, they, but a, a big chunk of their sales. So they had sales of uh, uh, three and three quarter billion dollars for the third quarter that ended in March. That's down 12% year over year. And despite about $150 million profit, that's down from a $550 million profit the previous year. So uh, profits way down, even more than earnings were down. Um, net sales down, if you take out currency, um, 8%. Currency matters a lot for this company because the business in Asia is huge. It's 31% of sales. And that's where they had their big problems. Um, there are two duty-free areas uh, in South Korea and the Chinese province of Hainan. And those two places uh, saw real problems thanks to the pandemic, uh, real problems in their sales in the last quarter and sale, and not really recovering quite yet. Uh, they tried to put lipstick on this pig. See what I did there? Because it's Estee Lauder and I talked about lipstick on the pig. They were very positive in the conference call, but the numbers were really negative or at least really bad. Uh, and so they tried to, to gloss it over, uh, calling it a reset. Here's CEO Fabrizio Frida. This is kind of, of a reset, but then after this reset, uh, travel retail will remain a large, a very important channel because it's an important channel also for consumer acquisition and it's a growing channel. And so to grow global market share, to be strong in travel retail will remain important. Also in the case of Asia travel retail and China travel retail, it's very important for coverage because um, in many, in many emerging markets, for sure in China, the coverage of, uh, of, of small cities is possible only via online and via the people traveling because the brick and mortars are not there, are only in a part of the city, which is the reason of high productivity in China. So travel retail is also a great opportunity for discovering product, for the physical experience, for interacting with our product. So and it's a very luxury channel, meaning the experience of luxury is very high. So the, the issue with travel retail has been really that during a pandemic, the volatility of travel and the interest and the possibility of travel is so much impacted by regulation change, the pandemic uh, up and downs, etc. Obviously, in a moment of a pandemic moment, travel retail has been more difficult to, uh, to predict and has been more volatile to anticipate. But in terms of the positives of the channel in the long term for brand building, for trial building, for being in a creative and positive profitable channel in the long term uh, remains intact. And so um, we, we believe that out of the pandemic, um, this will remain important channel. Now, so still dealing with the after effects of the pandemic, uh, and they say that that will continue. Um, an important channel? Yeah, you better hope that that's an important channel for them. Again, about 30% of sales uh, last year, and they hope for much the same in the next year, but uh, really uh, taking it on the chin. Oh, I could keep going on this Estee Lauder stuff. Yeah, you could. Did you chin. know that um, my husband used to work at Estee Lauder for a long time? I didn't know that, really. Yeah, yeah. Doing what? Uh, he oversaw their um, Clinique and various various brands, but mostly Clinique um, marketing strategy. Huh. Well, um, uh, the Asia business was uh, I, I, a little bit of surprise to me. I didn't know that was such a big business for this company or and, and indeed a business that's not doing very well. They have been, Estee Lauder, just from my knowledge of my husband working at the company for quite a while, um, Asia first for a long time, long time. 
All right, well, coming up next, we've got a, a deep dive on a really interesting uh, and overlooked company, I think, uh, in the oil patch, Ranger Energy Services, a company that, among other things, just announced in their earnings call that they're going to start paying a dividend once they finish paying down debt. That could happen even in the next year um, as a real big turnaround happened to this company. Fascinating time also in the oil patch, both technologically and what's happening with the price of oil globally. Uh, Ranger Energy Services CEO Stuart Bodden joins us in just a minute to talk about all that right after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled, technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. Welcome back to the Drill Down Podcast. We're glad you're with us. Stuart Bodden's with us as well. He's the CEO of Ranger Energy Services, a fascinating company in the uh, oil and gas uh, services business. Stuart, glad to have you. Uh, Where are you right now? I'm in Houston. Uh, Nice to be here. Uh, I'm sure it is nice to be in Houston instead of rainy California, where where we we seem to know us making a bid for us here. Um, So, uh, I, you know, I, I love the oil and gas industry, as our listeners know. Um, I, and one of the things that I really enjoy about it is that I think that, you know, when people think technology, they think Silicon Valley, where I am. But in fact, the technology of what's going on in oil services is fascinating. Um, what is it that you guys do? How do you explain what you do? Yeah, in, in a nutshell, um, we have two primary service lines. Uh, first of all is well servicing rigs. So those are mobile rigs where you go back into existing wells and do any kind of work that needs to be done on an existing well. And then we also have a large wireline group, uh, which is also going back into existing wells or helping complete new wells. Um, so think about wireline as a really long extension cable where you can convey a tool down um, and, and have it do whatever you need to. And then a well servicing rig uh, lets you pull stuff out if you need to pull. Let me dig a little deeper. Uh- pun fully intended, uh, what kind of thing does have to happen to an existing well? And what, what goes wrong and, and, and how is it you guys can fix it? So several things uh, can go wrong. So first of all, when you drill a new well, generally within the first six to nine months, that well is put on what they call artificial lift. So that could be an electric submersible pump, you point on technology, it could be a sucker rod pump, might be a gas lift system. But uh, very often, you have to put the pump in the well to help it produce more effectively. Um, so that's one of the so things this that we do. This we isn't the, uh, the Jed Clampett uh, uh, taking some bird shot into a hill and the oil starts coming out. The the natural pressure of the oil <laughs> coming out is not what actually happens in real life. Right. So so uh, the natural pressure eventually uh, struggles for the well to produce, so you have to put it on artificial lift. Um in most wells, modern wells today are on, on uh, certainly onshore or on artificial. Um, so, that, so that's one of the first things that we do. Um, you would also be going back into a well, so you could have um, some of the completion, the completion equipment uh, could be uh, malfunctioning. You need to pull it out. Uh, the tubing. So very often inside of the casing, you'll have smaller production tubing, um, which, which again makes it more efficient for the well to produce. But it corrodes, it gets paraffin, wax buildup, all sorts of things might be wrong with it. So sometimes you've got to just go back in and pull it and replace it. We'll, we'll impact that a little bit. So um, uh, for those not in the know, when a well is dug, it's dug into rock and dirt and it's increasingly difficult, but it's 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 rough. 
And so uh, a, a big wide pipe, which is called casing, is is pushed essentially down into that hole, and those holes go straight down and then to the side, more increasing with horizontal wells. Um, and then within that casing is another, uh, essentially an inner liner, right? And the reason there's paraffin in there isn't because they're digging up wax from under the ground, but they pump paraffin in there, what, as a, as a propent to hold the, the well open during fracking? Well, well, actually, a, a lot of wells do have paraffin naturally uh, in them. Uh, so it, it, you could actually have, um, again, you know, the, the paraffin uh, again, produced from the formation. Uh, if you kind of get like a waxy crude, uh, which you've kind of heard that term before. Um, so usually when, when after fracking, they'll put in propents. Um, so that would be sand or uh, generally sand these days to sort of hold up in the fractures. Used to be ceramics um, were hot for but, a while there. Yeah, they, they were hot. Much of what we see now is is sand, um, certainly in, with, with our customers, but um, ceramics were, uh, were, were, were pretty hot for a little bit. And if, and if I can, Corey, just to, I think, maybe help the, the listeners a little bit, you know, you talked about the vertical section of a well, and now we have a, you know, a lateral, just so people understand, you know, a typical well in West Texas might be 10,000 feet in the vertical section wow. with another sort of 10,000 foot lateral plus, you know, so you're now kind of talking total depth of the well, you know, 20 to 25,000 feet. And what was it 30 years ago? About 30 years ago, they were all vertical. So we weren't drilling a lot of the horizontal wells, uh, maybe a deviated well, kind of off at an angle. Um, and and now, 30 years ago, with some notable exceptions in Darko and so on, they weren't that deep. They were 2,000, 4,000 foot was a real deep well then. Right. Exactly. And, and, and the reason that you're now going deeper is the shell formations are actually the source rock for a lot of those shallower formations. So what we're now doing is going into the source rock and trying to break it open, which is what you know, fracking is all about so you can produce it. But if you just kind of think about it, it's, again, why we're, why we're going deeper because the shale is the source rock for a lot of, or oftentimes is the source rock for a lot of these upper formations. That's, that's the why do we rob banks? It's where the money is. Why do you take deep? It's where the oil is. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. you know, and and uh, uh, it, it, with the change, uh, all, the other thing that happens, I'm trying to think of the words for this, uh, is that wells are, the oil is discovered or, or presumed to be discovered. Wells are dug and they find the oil or gas, but it might not be economic at that time. And those wells are, are, are capped before they are completed or before they're, they're, uh, uh, all the work that goes in to get them out. I would imagine that, that uh, those wells that are not yet completed start to lead to the problems that you solve. Yeah, they, they, they do. So if a well has been drilled but not completed, they'll call it a duck, a drilled but uncompleted well, uh, perhaps not the most D-U-C, duck, uh, yes. D-U-C, drilled but uncompleted. Um, but then if you do bring that well online and you want to complete it, in completion, what that really means is you are um, perforating holes in the side of the casing so that the well bore can communicate with the reservoir. And then you're probably going in and fracking it as well. So that's the process. When someone says completions, it's really, again, perforating the um, casing and then fracking the well. Um, and again, whenever you do that, so on our wireline group, for instance, there's a process called plug and perf, uh, where we would go perforate the casing. Um, frack can come in, do the frack, we'll then move up, set a plug, because you're actually sort of fracking stage by stage. 
Um, and now it's not uncommon for there to be, you know, 30, 35 stages in the lateral of a well these days. And the, the volume of, of horizontal wells is, is incredible um, uh, to me. I mean, I, I remember when I first started investing in oil and gas and, you know, probably about 2005, there were, you know, 15,000, not even 20,000 horizontal wells. How many are there now in the U.S.? Probably about 200,000, you know, kind of a rough number. Uh, we're drilling about 20,000 a year. Again, kind of rough math. Um, and, you know, we really kind of got going back in sort of 13 and 14. So, um, you know, if you kind of look at the, at the uh, IEA data, it looks like it's about 200,000 horizontal wells. So, so incredible a number of opportunities for you. What, what's driving your business now? So a lot of our work is actually related to what we call production work. So again, that's existing wells that are, are producing. And to your point, that naturally grows, right? Because once you've drilled the well, once you've completed the well, you generally don't want to take it offline. Um, it's more economic to go back into an existing well and do any work if you need to. Those tend to be some of the cheapest barrels for uh, any NP company. So really, if you think what's driving our business is this sort of naturally growing installed base of horizontal wells. And, uh, and so that, that's, is, is that both for the uh, high spec rigs that you're, you're running that are doing that work, that sort of rehab work, if that be the right, making up new phrases there, but, yeah. um, and, and the wireline services explain that a bit to me again, you, you did a little bit of there. So, so wireline is both. So wireline can be completion related, which is, we talked about plug and perf. So you're perforating, um, you know, and then Brack comes in, you set a plug that's completion related, but we also do a lot of production work. So there's sometimes where. Um, the great thing about a well servicing rigs is it can pull, right? That's, that's really what, what it's able to do. But sometimes you can get in and out a lot faster with a problem. If there's an electric, um, sort of electrically activated tool that you can put in the well, um, and fix whatever you need to, then you would use wireline just cause it's faster and therefore cheaper. And that's about a third of your business. Uh, does it tend to be the same customers? Uh, it is, it's a lot of the same customers. Correct. Now, your business has been growing uh, revenue-wise fantastically for the last few years. Why is that? So we've actually, we're big believers in consolidation in our service lines. Um, so we have done in 2021, we did three acquisitions. Uh, the first two were in the wireline space um, that really, in particular, helped grow our northern operation. Um, and then we, uh, there was a company called Basic that was uh, out of bankruptcy um, pretty big company. They took the California assets were one package. The water assets were different. We got the sort of everything else package. Um, and that really, those three transactions from an asset base, you know, kind of two, two and a half, maybe even three times um, or tripled the asset base that we have. So a uh, big asset base. And a lot of that has been driving our revenue. So basically uh, buying some troubled assets and, and, and folding them into your, into your operation has led to some uh, big growth. Um, and, you know, uh, uh, like I said, the revenue base is growing. You haven't borrowed a lot of money, though. Your, your uh, debt to uh, uh, EBITDA or your debt to revenue, whatever numbers you want to look at, pretty low uh, for something in your business when your business is growing so fast. Do, do you look at that, that so, as a so source? We had a little bit of, I'm sorry. Well, no, I'm curious, I, you know, uh, everywhere everyone's looking at their debt uh, ratios and what debt work means to them. And I wonder how you're looking at it. 
So uh, as far as debt, the, we had a little bit of debt and it was really working capital build when we bought the basic assets in the fall of 2021. So there was a little bit of a debt build up there. Um, that said, and we've been very clear with our investors, um, you know, we've been kind of using the phrase fortress balance sheet. Um, this can be at times a volatile market. And so we really think it's important you think? for us to have a balance sheet that's very conservatively levered. And we've, all, we've also put a target out there for being net debt zero. Uh, what would make you want to change that? Or maybe nothing. You're just not, con you're constitutionally opposed to it. Uh, you know, I, I'm not sure we really want to change too much. Um, I mean, just get in this space. I think a lot of our investors have spoken pretty clearly that, you know, whenever they've really uh, gotten themselves in trouble in investments, it's because, it, you know, it's around the balance sheet. So I think we're pretty conservative there. That said, um, if you notice, we announced a capital return program. Uh, we're quite uh, bullish on the business and sort of how our company's performing. So we announced a capital return program um, on our earnings call a couple of weeks ago. Um, it's a combination of the debt, uh, of the dividend, once we reach net debt zero, which we should be the, the middle of this year, um, coupled also with the authorization to uh, buy back shares. Uh, interesting times in this business. What, what Obviously, rising oil prices leads to more work in, in, in the world of oil, although uh, drilling seems to have uh, not followed as much as it has in prior cycles. What do you make of that? And, and you know, do you think that 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 business is picking up or, or going to pick up? So we think it's just really steady and kind of, uh, you know, we, we feel like that our business is going to continue to grow. Um, and again, our kind of guidance is, is for modest growth. Um, but, you know, if you look at it, the E&P companies and the operators have been actually very, very disciplined, probably more so than, than we might have thought they would have given where commodity prices are over the last couple of years. And that's really driving us to be very on the oil field services side, um, be sort of very, very kind of balanced and disciplined as well. And, you know, there's been a lot of carnage uh, on the oil field services side. And I think uh, you know, certainly I am and, and a lot of my fellow CEOs have said that, you know, Again, we're going to really be much more returns focused than just building a whole bunch of new equipment. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, and why not? As long as your revenues continue to grow and they have been, uh, that's that's a that's a nice thing to see. Exactly, and 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 we do feel like that we still have some assets on the fence that we can bring out. Again, we're being pretty disciplined about it, but we think that we can do that if um, if the opportunity presents itself. Yeah, I thought that was one of the most interesting things in your investor presentations that I looked at that. Uh, suggest that with the equipment you have today, there is still a lot of capacity for further growth. Exactly. And, and we get the question a lot, you know, on pricing, are we at new build economics? And, and we would say we're not. Uh, you know, we don't think we're at new build economics in our service lines, which is why having the assets to take off, we think puts us in, in, in really in an advantage because we can grow with what we have. Stuart Bodden, the CEO of Ranger Energy Services. We're grateful for your time. Thank you. All right. Appreciate it. Thanks again, right, Corey. Coming up next on the Drill Down Podcast, we've got one number that tells us a whole lot about Ranger Energy Services right after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. With ERA, give yourself an information advantage, connect directly to earnings calls and other investor events with live transcription and event intelligence. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A dot -E com. And we're glad you're enjoying the Drill Down Podcast. Hey, tell a friend. Let someone know why you like the show or let them know through a review on uh, iTunes or on the Spotify app. You can leave a review of the Drill Down Podcast. Let the world know why you spend your time with us. 
And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at DrillDownPod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. We are back with the drill down bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. Well, uh, Isaac, uh, one of the interesting things about their business, one of the reasons revenues are increasing is not just because they're doing more work at Ranger Energy Services, but they're charging more money by the hour. So last year, their average rate per hour increased by about 15% too. So again, think about how much it costs to use one of these highly specialized rigs uh, to to uh, against essentially roto rooter the uh, the uh, the wells. Well, it's six hundred twenty five bucks an hour. That's uh, that's a good hourly rate. Healthy. So that started to add up for these guys doing uh, well over six hundred million dollars in revenues last year, um, uh, growing as I said, not just in more work and more rigs to do that work, but more dollars per rig, increasing at fifteen percent, and that looks like it's going to continue to increase here as their services are so desperately needed. Are you been listening to the Drill Down Podcast? Grateful for your time. Isaac Webster, I'm grateful for yours. He's our executive producer. Ben Wilson is silently editing this extraordinarily. The Drill Down is a production of the Business Podcast Network.